Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, good to see you. It's uh, wonderful to be together. You may tell that I've got a little bit of a chest cold, but I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all ready to go. I've taken lots of drugs, um, uh, ones that are legal and ones, anyway. Um, so I'm ready, and it may even possibly be the best sermon you've heard. Um, or, or, amen. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, so, so it's great to be with you. And yes, Pastor Steve, the team, those that ran uh, the marathon did an amazing job. It was incredible to see them. Pastor Steve himself did four hours and 15 minutes. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a good... Uh, that's a good time uh, for a first time. Uh, He's, he's, you know, he's a fine, fine young man. It was good. And yes, he beat me. Um, but um, but I, I think I had the cold coming on, you know. And I think <laughs> that's what I'm going to stick with. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful to celebrate together. Wonderful to be together. Those lovely lunches are going to be prepared for you by your husbands and your children. All white spot is ready. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. Uh, ourselves, we're going down to a Chinese restaurant. I won't tell you which one in case you all pile in, but uh, it, we're looking forward to that and to celebrate together. Uh, I'm going to try and take it easy this morning because of my chest infection and I won't be shaking hands at the end of the church because I wouldn't like to give you what I've got. Um, But verse 32 of chapter 10, I'm going to, Joel jumped forward last week brilliantly, shared with us his heart and, uh, but I'm, I'm transfixed by a few verses here in Mark chapter 10 that I can't get away from. And I want to uh, spend some time talking about those and, and thinking about the power of those verses. Many of you know that there's a letter from the board, uh, and please do take it and read it. It mentions that they have uh, uh, encouraged me to take a sabbatical. Uh, in the summer for uh, 12 weeks, so I'll be uh, uh, beginning that sabbatical, a mixture of, of uh, refreshment and study, and uh, I will be uh, picking three themes to study around uh, for my sabbatical in preparation to come back to continue to serve our church body. Uh, those themes are around, uh, you know, Understanding uh, the family's response to dementia uh, is a major problem within our society. And I think I would like to do some, I'm doing some reading, some studies, some classes around dementia, around um, general stress disorder. 25% of people in Kelowna and across Canada suffer with stress and worry and general stress disorder and also I'll be exploring the journey and what it means as a community to respond to the fact that one in three of us uh, are touched by cancer in some way in our lives and what is our pastoral response to that as well good practice 
in the 21st century. So those are the study themes that the board have approved for me to share and to study. Uh, I'll be uh, intending to take some leadership classes at Regents, looking forward to that as well. And of course, um, spend some time with the family and, uh, and working that through. So as you read that letter and understand it, I want you to know the background of that and uh, looking then forward to stepping back in for a terrific time of ministry as we move forward into our second season of ministry as a church. God has been doing some, some remarkable things. And so, um, so do pick up that letter from the board. Do be aware of that. And, and also know uh, that it is, is very common amongst our Mennonite family that after seven years we take time to pray, to study, to um, renew, and then move on uh, as reflective practitioners in, in, in pastoral ministry. And so, so putting you into context. All, so the summer's all taken care of. We've got some great preachers. Amazing. They'll be preaching week after week. The program's booked. You just have to keep turning up, please. And, and, and then uh, it's going to be wonderful. So do pray for that. There's a few weeks away from that beginning. But do pray for it. Ask that the Lord will minister. And... Um, we do believe in longevity of ministry. And longevity happens by not burning out. And so one completes seven years and you have a sabbatical to prepare for one's next seven years, okay? So don't listen to rumors. <laughs> Go on a sabbatical, they never come back. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Um, Thank you. That's so lovely of you. And, uh, and the reason is because we're family, aren't we? Fuller Institute tells us it takes about seven years for you to get used to a pastor. And then you trust him and it takes another seven years for us to bring revival. So, um, so now we're on the revival time. Um, and, and, and of course, they also say it takes seven years for you to get used to an English pastor. And... <laughs> And his strangeness. Verse 32 of chapter 10. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. It's interesting because he tells them three times about the fact that he's going to die. He tells them in chapter 8, he tells them in chapter 9, and he tells them now in chapter 10. However, in chapter 10, he tells them with such a vivid, such a powerful description. In chapter 10, he says that he's going to be completely condemned. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be spat on. Mocked and flogged. He gives the description in such a vivid way that we are in no doubt about what is going to happen to the Lord Jesus Christ at this moment. 
And he says, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the, to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I don't think they always got that message. I don't think they understood it completely. But you can link this verse and jump forward to verse 45, where we see that Jesus really explains something quite remarkable. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Notice that little phrase, did not come. What does that speak of? Well, it speaks of his divinity. It speaks that he actually came from somewhere else to this place for this task. To travel through this task and go beyond. It has this sense that he came not to be served. Suggesting that he came from a place where he was served. Where if you like... He was worshipped. He came from the glory of heaven itself and all the glory of, of the Trinity and the triune God. He came beyond. He came into this world. And the reason he came into this world, it is pretty clear, is that he came to die. So if you really think about it, Jesus has had... So there are many different expressions in his journey. He's the eternal Jesus that existed before all things. He's the incarnated Jesus that comes and lives amongst us. He is the Jesus who is forsaken by the Godhead on the cross. He is the risen Jesus with the new body to lead humanity towards the resurrection of God. And he's the glorified saviour in heaven, the Lamb of God that was slain for the world. This is how much God loves you. That he has travelled through all time, all eternity, all of space, time, continuing if you can use those phrases together. Whatever how we view it in our tiny minds, God loves us so much that he came from beyond eternity to come and die for us so we can be the redeemed people. You notice the word ransom appears. First time this appears. Leaves us in no doubt that this is substitutional in nature. Ransom. Now, today we think of ransom simply in terms of kidnapping, don't we? Somebody's kidnapped and the ransom is paid. If you're a great movie buff, you would know the story of Captain Phillips and, and when the Somalian pirates kidnapped a ship and they would try and get great money, millions of dollars, and kidnap the crew of oil tankers around the Somalian coast. It's well documented to... Uh, older British people were, were kidnapped for months because they were sailing in that region by pirates. We understand this. But, but the word ransom here in Scripture goes beyond this. It's the Greek word lutron, 
which actually means, it means to pay a huge price to release a slave or a prisoner. And Jesus links the word lutron in the Greek saying that I am going, I have come to serve, I've come to give my life and I'm going to page Pay a huge price so that you who are prisoners, you who are slaves, you are going to be completely ransomed and you are going to be set free and you are going to belong to me. That's what he says. He pays your ransom. Now, ransoms were really only prayed for very special people. In history, ransoms were paid uh, for kings. Ransoms were paid for members of the royal family, for noblemen who were captured in battle. The whole story of Robin Hood, of course, is about the fact that King John is uh, in prison somewhere in the Middle East and they have to raise a great amount of money taxing the people to free the king so that... They can ransom him because he is of great value. In times of Alfred the Great, when the Vikings and the Danes would come, they would take noblemen and it was a great industry to to capture a nobleman from Mercia or from Northumberland and, and put him up for the great treasures and treasures would come. And, and they would negotiate with the Danes because they were wanted the ransom and they would give a huge amount of silver and gold to rescue the person who is seen as worthy to be rescued. Boy, doesn't that tell us how much God loves every one of you. That you have been rescued not just with sacks of gold and silver, not just with goblets. You have been rescued by the cross of Christ and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come with you with sacrificial love to ransom you and to buy you back. Wow, it's fantastic. This Self-substitution of God himself showing sacrificial love towards you and reaching out to you is remarkable. But you've all experienced sacrificial love, many of you, haven't you? You know the power of somebody laying down their own life so that you can receive so much more. You all know that experience on this day we call Mother's Day. Because we know that for many of us, our mothers did exactly that, didn't they? They gave up so much sacrificially in our lives so that we may receive something special so that we may grow up to be functional, strong, independent human beings. Isn't that true? That's an amazing job. I think of my own journey. 
with our own children. And I think of what you have to go through. And when you're raising children, there is a substitutional commitment, sacrificial love towards your children. Correct? And it's not always easy. It is tedious. It is boring. But you do it because you love them. Correct? Let me explain this. We, we give to our children. Mothers give to their children. Often they give up careers. Often they give up their own pleasure for the pleasure of the child. Often what they'll do is they'll, uh, they'll give up their own independence. So life changes. You remember, you have a, a suddenly this bundle of joy comes into your world. In our case, a bundle of two joys. It was very exhausting. I would have one baby, and Michelle would have the other, and in the night we would feed either one, and then we'd swap them over the next night, throw them across. And then I'd have the other one, and Michelle had the other. Why did we do that? And every night we'd swap them across. Because we didn't, we'd read books about not getting attached to one more than the other. It just so happened that one of them had colic, so I got rather attached to that one. And so I purchased cable TV uh, for the middle of the night while I was up and down all the time. It was a sacrifice. When you're raising children as a mother, you have to, you have to uh, read with them. And you read with them because you know that the sacrifice of reading with them and giving to them helps them to grow, to become intellectual and helps them to develop. And those, those tedious, boring books that you read again and again and again lay the foundation for their academic achievements. Yes. So I've read many Barney dinosaur books in my life. Have you? I hate that pink dinosaur. <laughs> but I sat and watched Barney the dinosaur repeatedly. Again and again on VHS. The day we got rid of those videos was a great day. But we, we sacrificed time. We listen to the conversations. I don't know about you, but our children have always had the gift of talking a lot. Can't understand where they get that from. Correct? Mums, they, they listen to children talking and talking and talking. One of the most sacrificial things I remember doing is my children all went through the stage when they would bring their yearbook home and sit on the lap and then proceed to explain to you every name of every child in every year. It is horrifically boring. <laughs> but you remain attentive, don't you? Oh, really? The, the name's that, is it? Oh, lovely. Oh, they do that, do they? They've got this pet. Oh, lovely, lovely. Every one of us has been touched by sacrificial love. 
Every one of us, has, if we've been truly changed by somebody, it's been substitutional love. Every one of us has experienced what it is to know the love of God. We see it in the love of a mother. You know, for every negative word we speak to a child, we, we then choose to say another five positive words. Because we know that's how to raise children, to encourage them as mothers. And so at the end of it, we produce functional, blessed, strong-minded Young human beings who go on to live their own life and they are only that way because of the love that was sacrificed and given every day through caring. This reminds me completely that the only love that transformed is sacrificial love. It's the same in marriage. It's the same in friendship. It's the same in every area of our life. And it's the same law in heaven that God himself, Jesus died for us because of the love of God. And so we're reminded of this so clearly. But then, in verse 35, then James and John's sons of Zebedee came to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow, what a statement. What a way to have a prayer life. Lord, answer my prayers, whatever I ask. Imagine if your kids came up to you and said, I'd like you to do, Dad, whatever I ask you to do. What are you going to (laughs) say? Push off. (laughs) No. But Jesus isn't like you and I. Sometimes people's bad theology approach prayer in this way. In that kind of name it, claim it, prosperity type way. But of course, Jesus is far greater than us. He humors them for a moment. And he says to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in all of your glory. Wow. They're really going for it, aren't they? They, They're basically saying, we would like you to be the king of everything. And we would like you to make me the prime minister and my brother the chief of staff. We're not asking for much. We just want to be in control. We want to be number one. Of course, when the other ten hear about this, they're not very pleased about it at all. Because they've kind of jumped in on it. But Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking. Can you drink of my cup? Can you partake of my baptism in my glory? You want to be at my side at the moment of my true glory? You don't want that. 
Because there will be two people at my side in the moment of true glory. Yes, who are those? Well, at my truest moment of the moment of true glory, to my left and to my right will be two thieves who will be hanging on the cross with me. And you don't want to be there. There'll be two criminals. And Jesus is true glory. He said, you can't take of my cup. The word cup is, throughout scripture, is an image of God's justice against evil in the world. He's saying, you can't partake of the journey and the glory that I'm embarking because I'm going to take this cup and I'm going to defeat the evil. I'm going to defeat the darkness. I'm going to defeat all that is wrong in this world. You can't possibly take this cup. And baptism, it's not the baptism as we understand it. The word is, I am going to be immersed into this experience of the cross. So you don't know what you're asking. There'll be two people there, but you don't really want to be the two thieves. My moment of glory will be the moment when I'm forsaken and I rescue and ransom humanity back to myself. And he teaches them that it's not about being the prime minister or not about being the chief of staff. He teaches them that in his kingdom, it's not the way the Gentiles rule it over people. It's a different way. He says here in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their high officials exercise authority over them. So you're asking to be like the Gentiles. You're thinking that the kingdom that I am establishing is about power. Is about influence. Is about your right. Is about your position. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the kingdom I am bringing to you is not a kingdom of pride. It's not a kingdom of your arrogance. It's not a kingdom of your position where you are the top dog. Because pride, arrogance, seeking significance brings a blindness to your soul. No, when we serve the world as rulers... We serve in the way Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 25, what verse 7. 
that we pray for the blessing of the city, the prosperity of the city. When you're in Babylon, you bless where you are. You serve where you are. You love where you are. You do not allow yourself to become driven by arrogance, by selfish thinking, by self-serving. Number one, I want to be first. I want to be noticed. I, my opinion is always right. Let me tell you a secret. It's very hard and very tiring to always live your life being right. You'll wear yourself out. But to live your life as a servant is where real joy is found. Oh, many, re- many reports have been written about this. Many um, research papers have been written about the joy of selfless giving. About that when people seek pleasure all the time, the pleasure wears off and you have to go farther and deeper for more pleasure. But when you give sacrificially to others, when you give in kindness, when you live your life to serve the needs of those around you, the scientific community have proven that this is the most fulfilling experience for a human being. And all they prove is what Jesus teaches us, that when we serve and when we're not arrogant, And when we're not full of pride, and when we are servants, this is how to live a successful life. Even worry. Worry is an expression of saying that actually I know how I best think my life should be. And the way that it is, is not the best for me. But actually, a believer learns to trust God in every circumstance through the hard and through the good. And we learn to be a humble people that don't rule it over others. It's not about position or about power. It's about humility. Have you ever met a humble person? They're lovely, aren't they? I think we should all be. Let me give you some examples of a humble person. Many of us have been touched by mums who have been very humble. But I like to think of a humble person in perhaps three ways. First of all, a humble person is somebody who is more relaxed Because they trust God. And so it's not always about being uptight, about being correct, about their way. And I find that humble people are relaxed in their approach to life. And all of us need a good dose of humility to bring a sense of relaxation into our lives. Others... Humble people are people who are able to laugh at themselves. 
Because sometimes when we become full of arrogance and pride, we become, we become, uh, we, we lose the ability to, to chuckle at ourselves, to laugh at ourselves, to, to accept that, that we do foolish things as individuals, don't we? I mean, I mean, sometimes our own self-righteous, opinionated ways, we need to step back and have a good chuckle at ourselves and say, really, am I, am I so indignant? Am I such a, a judgmental oaf that I speak in this way and I act in this way? Humility brings a kind of an ability to laugh at oneself. Humility also brings an ability to examine yourself and look at yourself soberly and say, I am choosing to be a servant of all. I am choosing to walk the way of the Lord. And I will actually be bold enough to look at myself. And then say to the Lord, Lord, I will serve you. I will serve the world. I will want the prosperity of the city I live in. I will pray for the love and the blessing of where I am. And I will walk in humility. And I found that I get myself tied up in knots and frustrations and negative thinking when I lose humility as my steer for my life. Don't you? But we have to be Christ-like. Count Zindendorf, who um, led the Moravian movement of churches, uh, he was born, what, 1700 and lived for 60 years. He was a wealthy German man who, from a noble family who spent all of his family's money on the poor and on mission. It, the big change happened from his arrogant, royal attitude happened when he was in Duffeldorf in the museum there and he was looking at beautiful Italian paintings and there was a a magnificent painting of a picture of Christ with a crown of thorns on his head. And the Count looked at this and was so struck by the face of Jesus and by the crown of thorns on his head that he looked at it and took his breath away. It overpowered him. It was an encounter with the Lord through a beautiful Italian painting. And as he looked at this, he noticed the words at the bottom of the painting, and they're there. And the words go like this. I gave everything for you. What are you going to give for me. And as he looked into the face of the crucified Christ with the thorns rammed on his head, 
in a moment, Zinzendorf was changed. Because he realized that his focus was completely wrong. That he had to now live his life for doing it. He, Christ gave everything for him. Now he would go and give everything for Christ. Wow. So he did. He started the 100-year prayer meeting, the Moravian prayer meeting. They went out as missionaries. They prayed for 100 years. That brought around the Wesleys. That brought the revivals in, in Britain and many other key missionary movements. The Moravians witnessed to John Wesley, of course, when they sang their hymns as the ship was in the middle of the storm. But it was that encounter with the face of Jesus and priority that humbled the dear count that changed his life. May we all have a profound encounter with the face of Jesus. May we live a humble life. May we learn to examine ourselves. May we learn to laugh at ourselves. May we learn to relax and trust God in our journey. And may we continue to give up arrogance and pride and ego. I don't want to be prime minister or the head of staff. I just want to connect with the glory of the Lord face to face and see his face in my life. That's the power of being ransomed. You are freed prisoners and God loves you completely. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for sacrificial love that we've experienced in family life. For the pleasure of others that have given so that we may grow. But thank you for the ultimate pleasure that you, Lord, came beyond to pay a huge price to purchase us back. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the final moments of our sweet gathering today, may you minister to us about our own humility, I ask. (coughs) In Jesus' name, amen.